On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Ordinarily, I would come in here and around about three or four minutes past 11, I would say a good variety of stories on the front pages of the Sunday newspapers. Um, not so much today. I mean, there is good good variety of the lines that they've taken and of the new bits of information that they're getting into the public domain. Uh, but there's certainly uniformity about what the main topic is uh, on today's uh, four broadsheets because uh, it's it's pretty much wall to wall, the future of RTE and the future of Ryan Tuberty. Uh, the Business Post in particular says that Ryan Tuberty's own future at RTE is now in doubt as his agent's dealings uh, come under scrutiny. Senior RTE sources, we're told by the Business Post, are questioning if the national broadcaster can have a relationship with Noel Kelly, uh, the agent who represents many of the organisation's top earners into the future. Uh, The Business Post understands that the organisation is questioning if uh, presenter Ryan Tuberty can be in the air again because he can't hold politicians to account. Uh, The board met late last night to discuss the emergency meeting with the Media Minister Catherine Martin who has announced an external independent review of the broadcaster. Uh, The Minister says that the revelations signal deep potential ta- potential deeper challenges and the government is pausing its decision on reform of the TV licence although to be fair that was a decision which had been uh, long fingered for a little while anyway um, Catherine Martin says that the review of the top 10 earners pay will be conducted within two weeks she says that she expects the full cooperation of the RTE board and senior executives in engaging with this review and with uh, two Oroctus committees which are going to be uh, holding inquiries into this into the coming days we're going to be talking later in the programme with the chair of the PAC Brian Stanley who's holding a meeting with senior RTE figures on Thursday Uh, the Business Post says it can also reveal annoyance at board and executive level that they can't release any more details because they are limited by legal advice in what they can say Orty refused to comment when asked if Noel Kelly had ever acted as a consultant for the broadcaster in addition to his role as a talent agent for many of Ireland's top TV and radio stars. It did confirm, however, that the controversial payments were paid to a company linked to Kelly through a UK barter company. Uh, On that note... um, quite a significant development or at least quite significant details on the front page of the Sunday Times about how all of this was accounted for. Um, John Mooney and Bo Donnelly tell us in the Sunday Times that RTE told Ryan Tuberty's agents to send a British media company invoices labelled as consultancy services which the broadcaster then used uh, for €150,000 in top-up salary payments to its star presenter. Um, D Forbes, RTE's Director General, discussed the payments with Tuberty's agent Noel Kelly days before an arrangement was put in place to route money from the state-funded public broadcaster to the presenter. Uh, today's d- disclosure by the Sunday Times sheds light on how the station understated Tuberty's remuneration package. Uh, the payments were organised by RTE, which arranged for the creation of the invoices, which were labelled as consultancy services before being settled by the British media firm Astus last year. Uh, Tuberty's name was not mentioned on any paperwork or payments. RTE and Astus, uh, this, this is a British company, maintained a barter relationship where services were exchanged and traded. The London firm is said to have acted in good faith at all time and there's no suggestion of any wrongdoing on its part or on the part of either Kelly or Tuberty. Um, Kelly sent the invoices to RTE, which forwarded them to Astus to process the payments at an overall cost to RTE's barter account of €230,760, according to sources with knowledge of the affair. 150000 of that, obviously, uh, was uh, money which was due then to be paid to Ryan Tuberty. That was in lieu of two annual sums originally intended to be paid by Renault, who had been sponsors of the Late Late Show, but which did not renew an agreement which was then underwritten uh, by RTE. So details of exactly how it was all accounted for in the Sunday Times. The Sunday Independent tells us that Tuberty's cash is the tip of the iceberg. Um, An industry whistleblower claims that the sponsorship deal that allowed the broadcaster's biggest start to earn hundreds of thousands of euro in undisclosed income 
is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of commercial kickbacks and secretive payments at the state broadcaster. Uh, writing in the Sunday Independent today, a whistleblower uh, who has some familiarity of how uh, media sponsorship and uh, sponsorship works in general in Ireland. They say that the barter account used by RTE to make undisclosed payments to Tuberty has also channeled secret credit note payments in excess of €50 million Euro to media advertising agencies over the past 10 years. Uh, his comments were echoed by Ivan Yates, former News Talk broadcaster, obviously, and government minister, who said that the Tuberty scandal is the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's going on inside RTE and the way that it operates. The problem is with the governance, he said. This is all systematic of a culture of denial, arrogance and cover-up. Sindo um, says that um, yesterday was one of the most damaging days in the broadcaster's history as Catherine Martin announced an external review of governance to ensure RTE is fit for purpose and uh, freezing any decision about the future of the licence fee. Uh, and in case you're wondering how all of the public feels about all of this, the Mail on Sunday has commissioned a poll from Amorak, uh, which says that public confidence in RTE has been shattered. Uh, its front page says that more than 7 in 10 people now say they don't believe trust in the national broadcaster can be restored. And more than 9 in 10, 91%, say RTE should now come clean and disclose full details of the deal struck uh, with Tuberty's successor as Late Late Show host uh, Patrick Keelty. Uh, they've also said, and there's more details of the poll inside, 75% of people believe that Ryan Tuberty should have corrected the record himself. Uh, when it came to uh, correcting the public disclosures about what exactly he was being paid by RTE. And 63% of people say that in light of the revelations uh, that the payment of the TV licence should now be made optional rather than compulsory under the law. 25% of people say it should still remain compulsory. 12% of people don't know. 63% of people say that the TV licence should now be made optional rather than mandatory uh, as a result of this fallout with RTE and the way in which it has publicly accounted uh, for its financial affairs. Um, that is a taste of the uh, massive amounts of coverage. There are other topics in the papers and we will get to them later this hour uh, but that's a taster of what is in the papers. Uh, we're joined by Breda Brown who's a co-founder and communications director of Unique Media and by Michelle Murphy who's a research and policy analyst at Social Justice Ireland to discuss those and more. Already the texts are coming in. Please do keep them coming. 087 1400 Brida, um, I'll start with yourself. I, I genuinely don't know where to dip in. So um, just what what strikes you? What jumps out at you from the quite significant coverage? Of well, all this day today? three and the story is still on the front page and this is going to continue for the next while because essentially, Gavin, it is, the only way to describe it really is a huge, spectacular, chaotic mess. You know, that's exactly what it is. And it includes so many different parties at this point. We've got RTE, who's the public service broadcaster. We've celebrities and well-known names. We have the Taoiseach, we've the Thornishta, we've politicians, we've Oireachtas committees. Uh, we now have a UK firm that's involved in all of this as a result of the information in the Sunday Times today. And the entire public, everybody has an interest in, in this story. Um, and it's not going to end because, as you mentioned there, we have um, the chair of RTE met with Minister Martin yesterday mm-hmm. and we have two Oireachtas committees coming up this week, one on Wednesday and one on Thursday. So obviously the outcome of all of those is going to generate even more, even more coverage. Um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out which which of the, of the front of the front pages yeah. is actually the most interesting. Yeah. But I suppose what is new is the Sunday Times um, and where they're talking about the fact that the invoice in relation to this, uh, these payments to Ryan Tuberty had to go through a London firm. So that's quite interesting. And you have to ask why 
is that the case? Yeah. And actually Catherine Murphy, um, the Deputy Chairwoman of the Public Accounts Committee, actually said last night, you know, and she's right, there's no legitimate reason why anyone would create invoices for consultancy services to pay Ryan Tuberty <coughs> via a London firm, particularly when public funds are involved. Yeah. So I know we've been talking about words like concealed, hidden, top up, you know, under the radar uh, payments this week. But if they were going through a London firm, this absolutely indicates that that was the case. Yeah, uh, and we don't want to, to immediately rush to judgment, but certainly it's hard to to imagine why in the straightforward presentation of things, uh, an invoice for consultancy uh, would have to be paid for by a firm based in London uh, if if everyone thought that all of this was above board. Uh, Michelle Barfi, good morning to you. Um, what jumps out at you from this morning's significant coverage? Well, a lot of coverage. I suppose for me, actually, the, the poll in the Irish Daily Mail, I just think the lack of trust now in the public service broadcaster broadcaster is going to be hugely problematic. Mm. We're heading into an election in the next two years. You know, we've got two main broadcasters in the country. If the public don't trust the public broadcasters and their presenters to ask the questions that, you know, they feel should be asked, then I think that's hugely problematic. I think in terms of corporate governance, it seems to be an absolute disaster um, because you have as the Sunday Times you know they've kind of given the detail of how this was done and obviously now we're looking at a review of the pay of the top uh, 10 presenters I yeah. think that as you mentioned that that's in the business post but I mean also the people who signed off on this are obviously being paid considerable money too within RTE and then if you look at the pay cuts over recent years um, and I'm not talking about pay cuts to presenters here. I'm talking the, about the producers, the researchers, yeah. the journalists within RTE. Mm. And you can see the coverage in terms of the NUJ meetings and the real anger there with not just with the presenters and with Ryan Tuberty, but with RTE management yeah. and the management executive. I think that's hugely problematic. And I don't really know how the organisation is going to be able to recover from that. Really, yeah, yes. I, you know, it's you know, if you have a commercial arm of it on one hand, signing off on invoices to a London-based company, and yet you have another arm public going into the public accounts committee saying these are the pay cuts our top representatives have taken. Yeah, this is what they've been paid. Then, you know, I think it's going it, to be really, hard to really hard for them to square, square that. Um, one text has already come in. Actually, this this is maybe worth addressing just very quickly before I bring in Kieran Maluli, who's on the line. I'll get you both to, to pull on your headphones to hear from Kieran in just a moment. Um, Caroline texts in to say that RTE clearly has a lot to answer for, but it's hard to stomach the pile on from politicians and other media who've been carrying grudges and bearing resentment for a long time. Any chance it could be dealt with is more than clickbait. Um, I, I take your point, Karen, and, and there will be this this kind of rush to presume that the, there's something of a pylon from other media because everyone else in other privately funded media is looking for a chance to, to have a kick at RTE. Um, the one thing that I will so say is because RTE is created under law and RTE not only has responsibility to its viewers and to the public, but it has responsibilities to the state and to the government. RTE has to submit accounts that are published by the Minister for Communications every year, or the Minister for Media in this case now, and they have to be laid before the Oireachtas. And now there, there's a legitimate open question as to whether those accounts are, are a truthful reflection of what's going on in RTE. I mean, for, at the very least, Deloitte has to, you know, audit those accounts every year. They publish a figure which includes the wages and salaries, the remuneration to those who are connected to RTE. And and now there is a legitimate reason for the last six years to presume that those figures aren't correct. So if a state body which receives hundreds of millions every year in public funding, albeit through the licence fee, if there's question marks about how it is accounting for itself in financial terms, not least the, the, the version of itself that it presents to the public, I think there is an, an open question and it's not just merely something of the rest of media having a go at RTE because now it's showing some vulnerability. Anyway, I did say I was going to bring in Kieran Malouli 
People will obviously know Kieran as, as a long-standing uh, former Midlands correspondent for RTE who's with us on the line. Um, Kieran, people will maybe have this perception of RTE as being uh, phenomenally uh, well-resourced and that because of the, as reflects the, the money that's paid to its highest presenters, that, that RTE always has the resources to be able to do every project that it wants. Um, your experience when you were in RTE didn't quite tally with that. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the one of the issues that that really uh, annoys me and an awful lot of people who already who still work for RT, particularly the news division. Gavin, I worked there for over twenty five years. I left actually two years ago today. I left the newsroom and retired. And during that twenty five year period, I can remember at least six occasions on which the tightening of the belt, the reduction of of costs. Uh, the cutbacks uh, were, were came up for divisions. We had these group meetings uh, on site and off site where we were pulled in, dragged in again, um, and told, you know, this this issue has to be addressed. This issue has to be addressed. And the annoying part of this was all going on at a time, particularly after the crash, when we were uh, RTE as a group were paying significant salaries, huge salaries to mm. star presenters. And uh, I can remember the debates my colleagues included that at that time asking about that situation. And the, then there was those those guarantees were given back. This issue is being addressed. The costs of your five star presenters are being reduced. The, you will see it in the reports. You will see it year after year. We are addressing this issue. Um, and, and, you know, I think for the most part, um, my colleagues uh, uh, thought that was happening. That's yeah. where the breach of trust comes and, in. And that, that, that solidarity would have been very important to you and your colleagues, this idea that at least those who had the most to give were being asked to, to give a fair bit back. Absolutely. It, because because at that time, you know, we, we would have seen things happening and, and you know, reduction of cost in, in news. News is probably one of the smaller divisions of the operation. Uh, reduction of cost means things like uh, changing of facilities. We, we closed a studio in the Midlands because of a cost issue in my time, time there. We moved to an alternative site with a fraction of the rent in it. Uh, because because of a cost issue. And I know, uh, because I was there as well, the colleagues left the, or- the RT newsroom and they were not replaced for a significant period of time because it was a cost-cutting. Uh, and, and in that period of time, uh, the public, i.e. The, the licence payer, had to put up with it, uh, had to have uh, regions of the country which were not covered, what I would consider, properly. Uh, when I worked in the, in, in the RT newsroom initially 10, in the first 10 years, we had our own assigned camera crew to our division in the Midlands. When that guy retired and, and left, RT did not replace uh, w- with a full-time camera crew. So uh, the effect of that means that uh, people like me and other colleagues in the re- in RT regions had to scramble and, and race for crews from Dublin and elsewhere when something happened. And that was uh, making things difficult for more difficult for us and, and definitely a diminution of the service involved. Yeah, so eventually I mean, crews were replaced and some crews were found from, from elsewhere. But we put up with this because yeah. we were told cuts had to be made, the future of the organisation was at stake and the big issue of salaries was being addressed. Mm. Um, obviously I've got a certain amount of familiarity about how, how the crewing stuff works because I don't know, work in a, a broadcast newsroom myself but I suppose you'd be making the case that if you become used to regional correspondents having your own full-time camera crew and then it's it's replaced and you, you just don't get your own full-time replacement it does materially constrain how easily you can do your job because I suppose if anything arises as an emergency on your beat you then need to have a camera scramble down from Dublin which means it isn't always as easily to do your job as it should be. It's in, in a practical sense, Gavin. The public will appreciate it if a fire happens in the middle of the night um, uh, in in the town of Mullingar, the town of Athlone. The crew is based locally. The RTE news uh, team are able to get there, able to record the event, able to have the story on the news the next morning or indeed overnight for that matter. Right. There were occasions when I wasn't able to do that because we didn't have the facilities. And there were, there, it led to rows, it led to, uh, um, indeed, even with colleagues, it led to friction in, in terms of getting getting the service on air. But we were told that, you know, we were, we were part of this great operation to reduce costs. Even when I was leaving 
uh, two years ago. If I remember rightly, the then head of news, John Williams, was was faced with a uh, an edict from above as well, where he was going to have save have to save in the region of 1.2 million in a newsroom budget. And uh, you know, it was it was it, it almost it wasn't accepted by colleagues. Colleagues were looking around. We had the meetings again, but you know, it it was noted very quickly by colleagues that positions were not being filled yeah. in the newsroom after people left. My job wasn't filled for over a year. Ingrid Miley's position wasn't filled for a considerable period of time. Of period of period of time. The same in the northeast when a previous correspondent had left. Mm. And you know, the bottom line is, we we were told it, it RTE were cutting back. They were making changes. This was for the long term good of the organisation. The license fee was in a it was in a difficult situation no increases for a significant period of time and and uh, let's be fair about it RT is, is faced with significant investment in huge areas in terms of replacing facilities running orchestras running radio stations Lyric of MTG car writing the Grail Cup whatever, whatever we have responsibility mm-hmm. for the licence fee hasn't changed in a number of years so the staff were told these were the only issues in front of them that's why I feel for the staff of RT today the, the ordinary staff the people who are on le- a lot less than 100,000 euro never mind 300,000 euro who, who, who feel sick in their stomach for what has happened over the course of the last few days because they were told that the, the reductions were happening. Now we found out that uh, uh, as much as 345,000 extra was paid to one yeah. of the star presenters. Uh, one more question, Kieran, before I let you go. Um, what about, there might be some people who'd be listening and say that, um, that yes, clearly there have been shortcomings and you don't feel like you were able to do your job or that anyone in the newsroom or in other public service wings of RTE has been somewhat limited in how they can do their jobs. And that, yes, there's a breach of trust here, but that ultimately the, the figures that we're talking about on an annual basis, for, for 2017, we're talking about 20,000 euro. For for, 20, 000, for 2018 and 19, we're talking about 50,000, and then it's been 75,000 since. That, yes, it, it's significant money, but that it, it's not the, the sort of money that would make a material difference as to how, how, how well a resourced newsroom is, is going to work. What would you say in response to that? Well, you know, let me give an example the outside of the RT newsroom for a moment. Let, let me give you, tell you something. People say that, you know, it's a self-centered view by staff members or an ex-staff member. It's not. I was involved in a project in the Midlands with RT for over the course of the last 10 years I was there with the community where we tried to develop a national communications museum, a national science museum. Very briefly, the uh, you were broadcasting from Marconi House today in Dublin. The real Marconi House is in the Midlands. The original Marconi transmitter, radio transmitter used by RT turned on by De Valera in the 30s, lying in a shed in Athlone, basically. Local community went to RTE, tried to get the company involved in a project to develop it as a national communications centre, engaged, the local community engaged Ericsson, engaged Fulch Ireland into a number of grants supporting it as a visitor centre. What did RTE do? They refused to invest in the project. They said they were broke. Uh, the, or the committee involved tried to buy the land surrounding the site in Athlone for car parking for a new centre. RTE refused to sell it to them. They were just, in fact, in the end, they sold it over their head. For how much? Less than €345,000, I can tell you that. Now, it's that sort of a situation that annoys an awful lot of people. This was an important national communications and a, nas- a piece of our heritage. Yeah. The original Marconi uh, transmitter le- le- uh, lying in a shed, basically, left there. At, and it is an important part of our heritage and for, for future generations. Who should be seeing it? And it's one of the issues I feel really, really strongly about. RT came down, the chief group, group executive figures came down and said they couldn't do it because of financial restraints. Yet somebody at that table, somebody knew what was going on in regard to the to, to the, the uh, monies being paid to, okay. to presenters in different ways. Um, interesting little anecdote that, that illustrates an awful lot. Um, Kieran Mullooly, thanks for joining us this morning and on the record, I uh, do appreciate it. From, from maybe not the Marconi House, but certainly a Marconi House uh, this morning. Thanks for joining us. Kieran Mullooly, of course, former Midlands correspondent um, with RTE. Uh, one texter, hi Gavin, RTE now need to be held to the highest account. Remember the previous charity scandals and now this. The salaries involved here are ridiculous. Uh, what did the Taoiseach and President earn? Um, President is on quarter of a million a year. Taoiseach is on 215,000 a year. Um, each of them 
they're less than, than half of a, a, a um, recent Ryan Tuberty salary, I suppose, as it happens. Um, someone else says, Tubbs has lost all credibility. He admitted eventually he knew that there was a less than accurate account of his wages being presented to the public, his paymaster. He said it was it made a mistake by not questioning it. It wasn't a mistake, says his texture. It was greedy and grubby. I, as a taxpayer, do not want him back. Which sort of brings us to a bit of an open question, really. Uh, Michelle, what would Ryan Tuberty, do you think, have to do in order to be able to come back to the microphone? Or do you see a way back to him? I mean, I don't know. And I think that that text really, I suppose, highlights the issue. Number one, I mean, where is he going to go? Generally, if when these kind of things happen, I'm thinking across the water, there's some sort of major mea culpa standalone interview with another trusted broadcaster or presenter. I mean, where is that going to happen and how will people legitimately believe what's being said? I really don't. I can't really say. I suppose the, the Late Late Show has moved on so yeah. we're really talking about the radio show <laughs> so unless they completely restructure how the ra- what the topics that that radio show looks at mm. I don't really see how yeah, and I the suppose, first, first 50 minutes is, is yeah. looking at what's in the papers which is what be hard surprised to do. me because I'm sure every year he looked at the headlines those days when the salaries of the presenters were made public and yeah. either you earn so much that you don't know what you're being paid or mm. it doesn't occur to you yeah. to say oh by the way and I suppose just going back to the poll in the Irish Daily Mail the fact that 63% think that the pay, the licence fee should be optional that's yeah. hugely concerning because how are you going to fund public yeah. service well, you, broadcasting? You, you might wonder Brida whether that's a kind of a heat of the moment thing or whether people now do have different uh, long term views but do you see a, a way back for Ryan Tuberty in short order? He, he appears not to be on air again for this week, um, does does the storm pass in a week's time and he can come back? I can't see it in the short term, to be honest, because this story is going to run. As I said earlier on, we've got two Oireachtas committees this week. That's going to make sure that this story stays on the front pages for the next while. We have a Grant Thornton review of presenters' pay that's going to be completed in two weeks' time. So you can see this timeline is just pushing out. I don't think he will be back on air in the short term. Yeah. If he does come back on air, how is that, as Michelle said? How is that going to look? Mm. Um, he, he becomes the news again. Well, he is if, the, if the logic is that he can't be on for as long as he's the news. Well, it's it's catch twenty two because as soon as he comes back, I, and he is everybody the will be listening and they will want to know what he is saying. So, but again, it's also around the people he's interviewing. So, can he interview politicians? Can he be, you know? credible in terms of his interviewing technique I suppose at this point or do Warty make a decision and pull him off mainstream um, live broadcasting and do pre-recorded programmes or documentaries with him that's potentially another another way of going mm. about it um, but at the moment the story is not going away there's there's too many questions still to be answered Gavin that's the problem um, and you know as we saw with the papers today we, we've a lot of you know the who what when and where and we've a lot of new information that has come out What we don't know, and the one question nobody seems to be able to answer, and I can't, you know, this is the one I want answered is, why did this happen in the first place? Why was this deal initiated? Why, Hmm. why, why? The circumstances of of 2017 The circumstances around it. Why did he end up getting a top up in the first place? I think it's an under-addressed point of all of this because at least we have some explanation. People will decide for themselves whether it's credible. Mm -hmm. But at least we do have an explanation from RTE as to the circumstances of 2020 and 21 and 22. 22. 75,000 Renault paying for personal appearances and then RTE underwriting it. Three months on from all of this coming to light internally, 
they still can't offer us an explanation for 2017, 18 and 19. No, there is no explanation on the basis that nobody is willing to say why this happened. So who did RTE come up with this idea? Did somebody go to RTE and say we need a we need a top up here? We need to sort something out. We don't know. We know all the bodies involved and the, the parties involved at this point, but nobody seems to be able to answer the, the initial why. Why did this happen in 2017? Mm. Uh, something we will be discussing uh, much more uh, later in the programme. We have uh, Seamus Dooley of the NUJ and the PAC chairman, Brian Stanley. Uh, one more text um, before I go to an ad break. Um, Jerry Ryan became embroiled in a row over Pakels and RTE after the recession battered Ireland. He earned about €600,000. He held out on a 10% cut for months despite calls for him to slash his pay. He called all of that rubbish. Uh, Gavin, I remember the paper headlines of Jerry Ryan. He stuck his heels in on salary and he wouldn't take a cut. Um, I'm not sure what, what the ultimate thrust of that point is making, but I suppose it's a reminder that maybe there is a culture of some people um, holding out for longer money. Um Keep it to the text coming in this. We're going to be coming back to it a lot, I'm sure, uh, over the next um, hour and a bit. Uh, 087-1400-106 is the number for your WhatsApps. We're moving off the RT story and talking about some other matters that are in the papers uh, when we're back with Breda and Michelle after this. Um, Michelle, I'll start with you uh, for, for some other non-Tuberly mm-hmm. themed stuff, although if you do have text on that, uh, please do keep them coming in. Uh, there's an interesting piece under the headline on page 17 of the Business Post and it raises a broader theme of, of some of the pieces that are in the papers this weekend. Um, the headline on that piece is Why We Still Feel So Poor when Ireland is so rich. Mm-hmm. Now, your day job is as a policy mm-hmm. analyst with Social Justice Ireland. So I, I imagine that's something you have some insight on. Yes. And I mean, it's a, it's a piece by Aidan Regan. And I suppose he points to the fact that, you know, I would find a lot in my work. So, you know, we're looking at economic growth, full employment, a really good recovery from the pandemic. Yet our public services and our public infrastructure, as he, Aidan points out, is shockingly And that is why, you know, we come top of all these tables in terms of, you know, well-being, various other things. But when you dig down and we, I suppose, and he talks about which is what you have to talk about when you're looking at budgets and stuff. If you strip out the domestic economy from the international economy and you strip away GDP and you look at, you know, um, either GNI stars we have it now or actual individual consumption per person, then you get a very different picture of of Ireland. And he just points to the figures from Eurostat, which were out last week, which shows that, you know, we're the one of the most expensive countries in the European Union. Um, and obviously that goes down to the fact of the cost of housing here, the, you know, the really poor public infrastructure. So that's in terms of our energy infrastructure, particularly in terms of competitiveness and companies, but even our transport infrastructure, childcare, all of the things that, you know, people will come to expect. And he makes the point, you know, that salaries here are reasonably high, which they are. But when you're looking at your income then and how far your salary goes here, that's that's the problem. That's why people feel so squeezed because your salary will only go so far as what you can buy with it. And because our public infrastructure and services are so poor, people are putting their hand in their pocket for everything. That's why they feel so squeezed. And then we have a story in the Mail on Sunday at the heart of our public infrastructure. It's about the Children's Hospital and this was a story that broke during the week uh, yeah. with David Cullinan mm. from Sinn Féin. But Valerie Hanley has a piece here and basically which is saying um, half of the operating theatres at the new National Children's Hospital are so substandard they could not be used without substantial reform work yes, on some the... some sort of re- retro to do with the, remedial the, work. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the distribution of air within yeah. the theatre. Now, just say, just say before you go on, the hospital board has said that whatever works are done will not be too significant 
they certainly won't cost millions of euro and that they shouldn't delay mm. the rollout of the project. Wait, but there are still questions as to what, why they allowed the whole thing, thing to gather to dust mm. for 12 because months. Because this is May 2022, they were informed about this. And then the question is, is it an issue with BAM or is it an issue with the design? in the first place, you know, as in the architects or whoever designed the hospital, because obviously the construction company are just building to that design. Mm. And yes, so the board, you know, they say it'll cost less than a million euro. But I mean, there have been significant problems with this project since the very beginning. And we still do not have a National Children's Hospital of the standard that we should have. There are even questions about the location of this one. Here and we're not we still going on the location thing, are but, we? You know, but, still? you know, for people who don't live in Dublin, for example, you know, it's a huge yeah. issue. Mm. <laughs> you know, how do you get there? Is there part? I'm talking about, you know, not every child who needs to go to a hospital is living in Dublin. They have mm-hmm. families coming from Donegal, Cork, Kerry, Kilkenny, Wexford, Mayo, all over the country. But still, and it goes it goes to the broader point that Aidan is making. So here we, we have huge issues with the health services, with housing, but s- services for children in general, where it's a school pace for a child with additional educational needs, services for people with a disability, mm-hmm. you know, childcare places. That is why, you know, we do feel so poor and we probably look so poor to people from the outside because as a nation who's incredibly wealthy, incredibly rich at full employment, we still can't provide what yeah. are considered mm. the basics across the European Union. Yeah, very for what, Brida? Yeah, and I think, he, you know, he draws a comparison here. You know, he's basically saying that GDP is a junk measure mm-hmm. that really we shouldn't be yeah, measuring totally how, we, yeah. how we how we mm. operate here. A more accurate measure is actual individual consumption per person. And when we look at that, we're actually 13% below the EU average and we score so below the EU <laughs> average so when, when it comes to basically the, the amount of stuff that a person can afford to buy or consume uh, how mm-hmm. far your money travels basically yeah. how much you can use it for or spend it on and we're, we're lower than Romania so he's essentially saying that when you adjust it for local purchasing power money travels further in Romania than mm. it does here and that's the main reason why we're, we're, we're going down the ranks as such um, and to live comfortably in Dublin as he said you need mm-hmm. you need to be a high earner as a yeah. result you look at the price of Let's take a coffee, you know, mm. um, it's upwards and upwards and upwards anywhere between three euro and four fifty in Dublin at the moment. Um, and I was in Portugal recently and it's about one eighty. And you, you mm. do have to ask questions as to why is it that low in, in one country yeah. and that high I, in another. I was about to question whether coffee was the right barometer. But actually, if it's mm-hmm. if it's that cheap in another, if you go to Lisbon uh, and the coffee is only 40 percent of the price. Absolutely. And I mean, wine, you can look at wine, but obviously there's excise duty mm-hmm. on, on wine coming in here yeah. being imported. Um, but you do have to wonder why. Why is everything so expensive here? Why? Mm. Uh, a question to which I don't have the answer. Um, I, I said it wouldn't go near uh, Ron Tuberty again for me. There are more texts coming in, by the way, and I'll get to them in just a second. But there's another media story uh, on page four of the Business Post. And Brida, you might have some interesting thoughts on this. Um, Twitter has claimed that proposed changes to Ireland's defamation laws uh, that would put the onus on online platforms to remove defama- defamatory content. Um, they say they could have a chilling effect on free speech. Uh, they've written to the Oireachtas Justice Committee and say they can't be the arbiter of truth in cases of alleged libel and that it would be inappropriate of them to then to try and step in mm. and be the barometer of, of what is correct and what isn't. Yeah, essentially, this is this is sort of ongoing as such. Um, there was a new bill that was published in March and that provided that a person who believes that a defamatory statement about them has been published on an online platform, they can submit a notice to that platform. The platform then has 10 days to write to the author of the post for a response around the defamation and the response would then be forwarded to the complainant. But if no response from the author is received within five days, then the post could be removed and access to it disabled. Mm. Twitter, though, is saying that it can't, as you said, can't be the arbiter 
arbiter of truth in these instances um, and they believe that it is of paramount importance that national law provides the equivalent protection as EU law and Twitter does not and cannot control or preview the content posted by Twitter's users. Yeah, so we, 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 all of which is fair and, and it's true and um, there's been this weird kind of legal lacuna where companies like Twitter and, and Facebook have always tried to argue that they are the medium and not the publisher so they feel it would be unfair to hold them responsible for what any user could just log in now, and say well, on the website. We're talking about 10 days here. Mm-hmm. How many people do we know or have we read about who have, who have been on to Twitter to try and get stuff taken down and it's taken months if mm. at all for them to come back. Um, the other issue at the moment is that if you email, obviously we've had a huge amount of change within Twitter in Ireland um, at the moment. Yeah. You know, um, amount of people who have left. left exactly. There now, yeah. So when people are emailing now at the moment and per- apparently emailing the communications department they I've, get a I've very, a very unsavoury emoji coming yes, back. Yes, so you, you write in and say, uh, you know, for example, if I wanted to follow up on this story and I said, hey, tw- hi Twitter, could you um, substantiate or could I get an interview with somebody about some of your concerns around this new defamation law and you'll email press at twitter.com mm-hmm. and you will get an auto reply and it's the poop emoji. Yeah. Because so, that, that's what they think about accountability to the public. Exactly. So I'm sorry now, Twitter, if you're going to come out and say this is an effect, a chilling effect on, on free speech, sort yourselves out first, please. Yeah. Uh, one thing I find interesting about this is that there's a picture alongside that story in the Business Post of Twitter's new CEO, uh, Linda Yatterino. Um And... It's fair enough for Twitter on one point to say, listen, we can't be a real-time arbiter of what is correct Mm. and what isn't so that you can't hold us responsible for defamatory things that are posted by others. However, I will say, and this is something that Linda Yattarino said herself on Twitter inside the last two weeks, Twitter is on a mission to become the world's most accurate real-time information source and a global town square for communication. That's not an empty promise, that's our reality. You go, well, if Mm. you're promising to be a real-time arbiter of what is true, then you can't go and write to TDs that are creating laws about defamation and then say that you're mm-hmm. incapable of doing so. Like, you you either are or you aren't. Um, there's a lot of um, Tuberty response um, still coming in. One person texts in to say, uh, Noel Kelly's acts have a disproportionate influence in Montrose. Uh, any gig going, his acts are always top of the pile. Uh, are we to believe that these people are actually the best candidates always? Uh, we need to look at recruitment practice in the public broadcaster. How could one agency control so much at the public broadcaster? And are we comfortable with so many of those people not being employees of RTE uh, itself? Um, one thing in response I will say is that at least it means that RTE isn't responsible uh, for their pension arrangements, but it, it's a fair point around uh, their accountability. Uh, now that the ball is rolling, says one person, check all of the figures for people working for government on outside contracts this is just the tip of a huge iceberg says that texter taxpayers money going down a lot of drains um, somebody else says if you do the maths 2,000 families have to pay the TV licence just to cover one person's salary says one texter and Moyen County Clare says I'm not overly surprised at Re Ryan's deal but I am very disappointed however I would still trust RTE News implicitly the problem is how the non-star journalists have been treated it's max of a huge lack of confidence in management that a star couldn't be replaced with new talent if demands are too high Ryan, Ryan Tuberty is not RTE he is merely a presenter like anyone else except Moya says more greedy his standout gig was the late late toy show but everything else about him or any journalist can be replaced he can't come back after this and his salary will go a long way to fixing a lot of stuff I will still pay my licence fee says Moya in County Clare And let's look at how the staff are being treated and I'm talking about everybody who works there and I'm sure morale is absolutely on the floor at the moment but how are they being com- communicated with at the moment I know Adrian Lynch sent an email um, the new Deputy DG sent an email to, to all staff yesterday that felt like it was the first time nearly there was a, a form of communication with the team to let them know yeah. exactly what was going on Are we going to have a case though where 
all the staff are going to be finding out what's going on in their organisation when they're listening to the Public Accounts Committee, the Media Committee on Wednesday and the Public Accounts Committee on Thursday. Yeah. Um, also, the staff didn't know that their DG had been suspended. No, uh, which is remarkable. And, and I will say that I think, first of all, I put in a press query. I, I got wind on Thursday that D4 was gone for the job. I put in a press query, didn't get a reply back. And I think it's remarkable that Shu Nirali, the chair of RTE, went on the 6-1 news and wasn't able to volunteer that information. Mm. If that was supposed to be an exercise in transparency, how, how you go on and not Correct, say that? Correct, but I, the minister, the minister knows now at this point that um, the director general has been suspended, but she has stated a couple of times she does not know why. I mean, that's absolutely yeah. outrageous. Yeah. Why does the minister not know and why does everybody not know why the, the director general, one of the most key senior civil servants in this mm. country, essentially, has been suspended? Uh, Portuguese minimum wage, says one texter, is €887 Euro a month. That explains their cheap coffee, says that person. Well, Thanks for your input. 87 1400 for your WhatsApps. Do keep them coming. Uh, more from the ladies after this. Um, someone's been in touch on Twitter to say that the question of whether social media companies are publishers or not, it's actually not that complex at all. If they curate an algorithm that shows you or decides what you're being shown, then they're publishers and they're responsible. And it's as simple as that, uh, which is a, a very uh, straightforward response. Uh, and thank you for that. Um, Declan Power, uh, Defence and Security Analyst, uh, is with us on the line. Um, Declan, I might just pick your brain in a moment about what you make of the latest in Russia and the latest of, of what is and rather what isn't happening uh, in Russia. But first of all, the Consultative Forum on Security Policy, you've been uh, a participant in that, which has been in, in Cork and Galway over the last couple of days. Um, after all of the uh, opprobrium of last weekend about the intervention of President Higgins, uh, what do you make of the debate and how it's been in the last couple of days? Um, well, Gavin, I think it's been remarkably successful as a democratic event. Um, it's been, I think, classically Irish, uh, at times a little bit messy, but the consistent thing has been uh, an exposition of knowledge and information from different perspectives about international security, national security, and Ireland's place in that, where it is now, where it needs to be. And there's, uh, there are rather a series of themes emerging. Um, but to, to come back to the point of, of the democratic aspect yeah. of it, uh, most of your listeners will be aware there were a number of protests. Uh, it was particularly chaotic at the start of, uh, oh, of the event in Cork. But uh, I, I've never quite been, I've never been at an event quite like it, you know, where you would have some serious international authorities on their subject uh, having to kind of bandy words with people who seemed so uh, in- incoherent and confused about the matter and driven by some sort of an ideology that doesn't have any basis in, in reality, from what I can see. You don't think it has any basis in reality that they believe that Ireland is a, a better force for the world if it isn't militarised? But you see, the issue is, the primary issue is how do we protect ourselves? And uh, I think it's, it's like the old adage, anyone who's ever flown a plane, they tell you when the oxygen masks drop down, you put your own oxygen mask first on because you're not of any help to anyone else if you don't. And I think that's the, that's the approach we need to be thinking about this. But coming back to the better force for, uh, in the world, one of the themes that came from a variety of people, some Irish, some not, but who are at the top of their game internationally, uh, such as uh, Renata Dwan, who's worked at very high levels within the United Nations, Professor Bridget Laffin, who uh, is a, a, an authority on matters to do with European governance. Mm is that Ireland is not exceptional in this. And, and actually, we, there are other countries that uh, are in, have a variety of other arrangements with regards to their national security who are accepted as honest brokers. The Norwegians, the Canadians, uh, 
the Dutch, uh, you know, the, the fact that they're members of whatever, not just NATO, but it hasn't stopped them uh, from doing what they're doing because mm. they have developed an authority. Now, there's another point that has come out too. People keep thinking that we are in some sort of a position to be an honest broker, but we're also, we're part of the European Union system. And there are other players in the world who don't see us as being a completely independent yeah. voice. So do, do that's, that's the case as it is. Broker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now that's the case as it is right now, regardless of what we join. And the other key theme that has come out of this too is that we don't need to join anything or have constitutional referendums. We need to recognise the things that we're already plugged into, and start leveraging, start using them. Like okay. we are signed up to Pesco, but yet we don't use the heavy airlift capacity that's available through that. We are members of Partnership for Peace at level two, and we could use that gives us access to some of the subgroups within NATO. Now people get they lose their lunch when they, some some people a certain yeah, but people think people. that collaborating with NATO basically ultimately means becoming a part of NATO, which means then sending sending our young to die in other people's wars. Yeah, but that's simply untrue. And I'll tell you, and uh, what people need to uh, come at this from the perspective is a bit of demystification. The Austrians, the Maltese, the other two neutrals in, <coughs> excuse me, in the European Union have a number of uh, partnership arrangements. In fact, the Austrians, it seems, have more higher level partnership arrangements with NATO than we do. Uh, the Swiss in the last number of years, have developed partnership arrangements with both NATO and the European Union. This is the country, Swiss, this is Switzerland is the country that wouldn't even join the United Nations. And in fact, there was a time in the earlier years, if people read Conor Gallagher's book, it's an excellent read, they'll realise that in the early days of the United Nations, there were various legal uh, and academic uh, authorities who believed that joining the United Nations rendered your neutrality uh, null and void for a variety of reasons. So I suppose the point being made is we're in a state of flux. The concept of alliances or the concept of neutrality is in a state of flux. Okay. Uh, and we're in a position to decide what suits us right. without having to change our overall concept or yeah. stance. Um, and that won't damage us on the world stage. Can I pick your brain just on one other issue, Declan, because I mentioned the, the ongoing uh, events in, in Russia inside the last 48 hours where we had uh, the Wagner Group uh, announcing that they were effectively going to try and, and take over the central Russian government and then last night deciding, no, they weren't. Um, at this kind of remove or this far away, what do you make of what's going on? It's, it's very unusual because I, I would have thought if you wanted to stage a rebellion, you'd have done your homework and you would follow through because you'd know the consequences of not being successful, like uh, for Mr. Prigozhin, could be rather lethal. Uh, for him to have stopped and appear to be now uh, bugging out, to use a military phrase, uh, is unusual. It seemed, my guess would be that Prigozhin was the tip of the iceberg that was above the surface, that there may be a cabal of people in the upper echelons in Russia who feel that Putin has had his day and that this was the start of a, a probe, maybe, to uh, to see could they end it. And the fact that Prigozhin's uh, forces, the Wagner forces, got so far without a hand being turned against them, I mean, they took over two major areas mm. uh, without much uh, trouble. There was no move by the Russian Air Force against them. They could have easily have been taken out. So there seemed to have been maybe a vacuum of yeah. authority for a period and that that then changed and the Prigozhin, somebody communicated with him that if you go uh, another yeah. step further, the full the, weight the, the would fall upon changes. you. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing is for sure, Putin's 
reputation and authority have been significantly damaged and the war in Ukraine will be significantly okay. affected by this yeah, in, in a good way. I, I do wonder say. what people in Russia would make of it if Putin is on, on telly on a Saturday morning saying this rebellion has to be crushed and then on Saturday night says, he says, right, no further prosecutions. I wonder what the people on the ground make of it. Um, Declan Parra, thanks for joining us uh, on the line. Uh, Brita Brown and uh, Michelle Murphy still with me in studio. We've only got a couple of minutes left. I see you've both got political pieces open uh, in front of you. Uh, Brita, is it time to indulge our, our great national pastime of deciding which of our politicians are off for a big job in Europe. That's it. Well, Michal Martin is at the centre of it at the moment. Um, he has always said he was going to lead Fianna Fáil into the next general election, but there's now sort of a growing consensus that actually he may go next year and he'll take up an EU role in Brussels, most likely as Ireland's next European commissioner. So that's going to be interesting to look at. The other thing with Fianna Fáil, though, is they still don't have a deputy leader and they haven't since Dara Cleary left yeah. uh, or was forced out, I should say, as a result of Golfgate mm. in 2020. Um, and prior to that, they the, the six years prior to that, they didn't have one either after the resignation of Eamon O'Keefe over his stance on the EU treaty referendum. So what people are sort of saying now, if, he, if, if Micheál Martin does decide to appoint a deputy leader, that he will be probably, the individual will be handpicked to succeed him as party leader. So it's all, all connected. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a case that they don't want to appoint a new deputy leader because clearly the, the history is pretty checkered. It, it is, is. Just, <laughs> a little bit. just a little bit. And, and, and maybe a control thing from yeah, Neil Martin's uh, perspective. Maybe as well. so. Uh, Michelle, you've got the, the Red Sea ping pole in front of you. Sinn Fein down five points in a month. Yes, and I suppose they go into some detail here around, you know, was that a bounce from the the, the elections, uh, the Stormont elections? Yeah. And then, you know, the margin of error. So realistically, they're probably around 30%. September 2021 yeah. they were on 25. They were unusually high in the last race yeah. I remember so, so it could just be a correction. Uh, and that's what Richard Caldwell kind of points to here it's probably just a, a natural correction on that so you know the drop is not as pronounced. For me I think what stands out is that uh, Fine Gael are at 22 that's only one percentage point more than September 2021 so they're stagnated mm. more or less but then with Fianna Fáil the drop is from 22% then down to 16 mm. and it's like so you know just in light of the discussion around do they appoint a deputy leader yeah. and even that piece in the Sunday Independent there's like who do they even appeal to anymore they mm. seem to have lost they've acknowledged they've lost the working class vote they pinpoint younger people as a potential place to go I really mm. can't see that happening and, and I suppose if I were in the smaller so I'm looking here Social Democrats Labour Greens People for Profit Solidarity ain't to yeah. I mean they are going to be in the next election. Those groups are going to be really scrambling for those votes because you can see they're going to be hoovered up. The independents are doing well and that always happens here. Yes, yeah, They yeah. are going to be, you know, fighting it out for the scraps that come from, mm. I would say, the Sinn Féin transfers mm. and yeah. that's going to be really significant uh, for those parties. Brian Stanley about that actually we have him after 12 o'clock, the chair of the PAC. Uh, for now though, we're completely out of time. Uh, Brida Brown of uh, Unique Media and Michelle Murphy, uh, researcher with Social Justice Ireland. Thank you both very much uh, for joining me in studio. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.